Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning is from Psalms, uh, the 33rd Psalm. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from, the hev from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth, he who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might, it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him and those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their souls from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Joey, and my six-year-old daughter is not in Sunday school this morning. Uh, because she woke up sick with like a cough and a fever and that raspy, I just want to go back to bed voice. You, you know it. You've, you've heard it before or done it yourself before. So, but since I'm preaching and my wife is singing second service, she is in my office right now uh, watching a movie on the laptop. She's watching Trolls. I don't know if you've seen this movie. It's based off of those little, you remember those little plastic figurines with the annoying hair that would get... Um, it would get all tangled, and it, that little plastic comb they sent with it was never sufficient to get it untangled. You know what I'm talking about? And, and this, this, this movie she's watching right now, it's a bit ironic, her being sick and watching it, because the fundamental premise of this movie is you can choose to be happy. You don't have to eat trolls in order to be happy. That's the big threat in the movie. These ogres eat trolls. It's the only way they've ever known to find happiness. And the trolls, of course, are arguing that, no, you don't have to eat us in order to be happy. You can just choose it. So question for you this morning, who wants to be happy? Anyone here want to be happy? Yes? No? Maybe? 
you're a little unsure if this is audience participation time or not. Thank you, Julie. All right. It's kind of a silly question. I know it's like asking a room full of kids who wants candy, right? That, like the, they all, if they're well-behaved, they all want it, but none of them will say it if they're well-behaved. I don't know any well-behaved kids. Um, Happiness, as we're going through this uh, summer series, Songs of Rescue, this summer in the Psalms, we're looking at different emotions and how the Psalms teach us to process, to experience, in some cases to cultivate those emotions through prayer in God's presence. And today we're talking about happiness. Now I know the last couple weeks were a little more negative. We were talking about fear and envy. And in the next couple weeks we're going to be talking about discouragement and disappointment but it's not all going to be negative emotions. There are some positive ones that we naturally express but need to learn how to express well before God. So today we're talking about happiness. What is it? How do we get it? How do we experience it and express it before God? Now some of you may or, or may not have heard of an old 4th century Christian theologian named Augustine or Augustine, or Augustine, or how, whatever you know him by. Uh, he and other old famous dead theologians are pretty well known for the, in most cases, brilliant things they said. But one thing Augustine said that kind of uh, seems to have come from the Department of Common Sense, uh, he wrote, It is the decided opinion of all who use their brains that all people desire to be happy. Seems like one of those, well, duh, comments, and yet other old dead Christians have felt the need to point it out as well. Pascal, the 17th century French philosopher, wrote that all people are in search of happiness. Actually, he wrote it in French, but I don't know French. So uh, he said, all people are in search of happiness. There's no exception to this, whatever different methods are employed in the search. Everyone wants to be happy. In fact, today in the U.S., the so-called happiness industry is booming, it's impossible to keep up with the books and articles and seminars and top 10 ways to be happy lists that are flooding the internet. Everyone wants to be happy. Of course, perhaps maybe we should infer from the fact that we have a happiness industry that not many people are finding it. Can't seem to figure out where happiness comes from, at least not in the U.S. where life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness supposedly reigns. In a recent worldwide poll, actually this is a happiness index that is updated yearly, uh, America ranked 14th on the happiness index. Uh, the Nordic countries made up the top five. And what I don't understand, even Canada beat us. Again, I just don't get that. But even though we are ahead of 140 other countries, uh, nowhere has the happiness industry taken off as it has in the U.S., which I suppose maybe shouldn't be too surprising. The more developed a country is, the more free time its citizens have to worry about whether or not they're actually happy. Way back 2,000 years ago, the Roman Stoic philosopher Seneca, he lived about the same time as Jesus, wrote, there's not anything in this world, perhaps, that is more talked of and less understood than the business of a happy life. It is every person's wish and design, and yet not one of a thousand knows wherein that happiness consists. We live, however, in a blind and eager pursuit of it. And the more haste we make in a wrong way, the further we are from our journey's end. And I don't know about you, but I don't really want to get to the journey's end and find out that I was looking for happiness in all of the wrong places. 
And I know that it, at least this much, that it does no good to keep going on the road we're on if the road we're on is the wrong road. Sometimes the best thing we can do is turn around and go back to make some progress. Well, thankfully, and you, you would uh, expect me to say this, I think, but there are some clues in Scripture on where to find happiness and how to experience it, uh, which is why we're looking at Psalm 33 this morning. So turn with me to Psalm 33 if you'd like to follow along. It's on page 546 of that black Bible that is underneath the seat in front of you. Uh, but I, I want to give you advance notice, um, kind of a, f- a fair warning here, I guess. I'm not actually going to get that far past verse 1. Uh, this, I, th- I think this psalm could have been, I don't know how many verses is it, uh, 22 sermons. I'm mostly going to hit verse 1, but we will pull out some insights from the rest of the psalm as well. But just in case we get to the end you know, of point 1 and you're like, holy cow, how long is this sermon going to be? Um, we're only covering verse 1, mostly. So let's take a look at it. Psalm 33, verse 1. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Verse 1 begins immediately with a command, shout for joy. Shout for joy, it's a command. Uh, It's something we're supposed to do, a shout, uh, like a stadium cheer, not not like our typical Western European sort of yay, uh, but more more of a loud and exuberant expression of joy. That's what we're commanded to do, shout for joy. Some of your Bibles may say something like rejoice or be glad or sing joyfully, but the command is the same, shout for joy. And I know some of you are scratching your heads right now uh, because you're thinking, wait, I thought he started out talking about happiness. Now he's talking about joy. I thought those were two different things. Well, not really, actually. Uh, Would it surprise you to know that happiness and joy have been used synonymously throughout all of Christian history up until only about the last hundred years or so? Over a hundred times in scripture, in like actual, you know, peer-reviewed, we have scholars on our staff translations, happiness and joy show up in parallel uses over a hundred times. It's only recently that we've started to separate the two concepts into these different things, into happiness and joy. About that difference, one author writes, the standard rhetoric proclaimed from the pulpit and other teaching venues in the church goes something like this. Happiness depends on happenings. But God is the source of lasting joy. It's the spiritual life and the soul, not the physical life and the body, that really count. God isn't concerned about your happiness, but rather your holiness. To God, your character matters, not your comfort or your convenience. I mean, come on. Christianity is a spiritually serious and morally rigorous religion. We should not be distracted by worldly, worldly, not weirdly, worldly preoccupations, excuse me, worldly preoccupations with happiness. I'm just going to back up and try that sentence again. We should not be distracted by worldly preoccupations with happiness that distract us from important spiritual principles and purposes. End of story. And you know, when I hear that message, I kind of feel a little guilty uh, inside because I know that I, I tend to care more about happiness and about feeling happy than about being holy. There's something in me that kind of pushes back against the idea that happiness is what the world has and joy is what Christians have, that God is only concerned with my holiness and any happiness I get is just extra, a bonus. 
And I think I naturally push back on that a little bit because my life, and I know most of your lives, almost everything we do is oriented, and I think naturally oriented, around our happiness and the happiness of those that we love and care most about. The choices we make, the jobs we take, the people we spend our time with. Holiness is part of it, yes, but so is happiness. And part of this separation of joy and happiness have, has caused Christianity to get a bit of a reputation as a, uh, as a fun-sucking religion, a dehumanizing and life-denying religion, instead of one that actually rehumanizes its followers and affirms life. You know, we're supposed to be straight-laced and sober and sad. Uh, or it's H.L. Uh, Mencken was a prominent atheist. He, he said that Christianity suffers from the haunting fear that someone somewhere may be happy. And that was certainly the feeling I got growing up within a much more fundamentalist strain of Christianity. Uh, we were taught you can have joy, yes, but that's not happiness. And don't, you're not really supposed to let anyone see it. Don't go looking for it. Psalm 33 tells us, shout for joy. Or you could say, shout for happiness. If you don't believe me that those two words can really mean the same thing, Isaiah 42 talks about the gospel as the good news of great happiness. We are supposed to be happy because of who God is and what he's done for us. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote in a personal letter to a guy who had just lost his wife. He wrote, it's a Christian duty, as you know, for everyone to be as happy as he can. So if we're to aim for happiness, if we're to aim for joy, and they're not different things, then we need to know where that joy can be found. We need to know how to cultivate it in our own lives and see what happens when we find it, which thankfully is exactly what Psalm 33 illustrates for us. So back to Psalm 33, as we dive into it and talk a little more about just this first verse, uh, we're going to see a couple of things, primarily where happiness can be found and secondly, how we can cultivate that happiness in our own lives. So Psalm 33, again, verse 1, as we look just a little bit closer to it, it tells us not just to shout for joy, but to shout for joy in the Lord. And of course, that little preposition in gives us a clue to the answer of our first question, where do we find happiness? The psalm writer is telling us that joy, that happiness is found in the Lord. Uh, but I suppose so far in this sermon, um, we haven't actually defined happiness or joy. Uh, I've only said that we all want to be happy and that happiness and joy are the same thing. They're synonymous. So, I mean, what are they? Now, I know most people define happiness and joy in a hedonistic way. That is, in a way that is primarily concerned with pleasure uh, and having lots of it. One philosopher writes, more than a few conceive of the concept of happiness in sensualistic, materialistic, and egotistical or self-centered terms. Food and sex, wealth and possessions, achievement and power are the goals that goad so many of us into action. We are in search of the everlasting ideal in education, finances, work, technology, marriage, parenting, friendship, travel, adventure, health, entertainment, recreation, religion, food, drink, sex, and self, he says. And it seems to be that our natural approach to finding happiness, to gravitating toward and grabbing a hold, uh, our natural approach is to grab a hold of all of the, the things uh, 
that we think are going to bring us joy or a sense of contentment or a sense of having achieved something. And, and you know, this tendency shows itself in people like me, the collector who wants to collect everything and feels happy acquiring new things, whether that's experiences or spouses or adventures or hobbies or jobs or stuff, whatever it is. It also shows up in the minimalist who gets rid of almost everything. The person who looks at every experience or job or relationship or thing with that question of, does this bring me joy or not? And if it doesn't, you chuck it. You know, both approaches, the hoarder and the declutterer, are looking at people, at, at things, at experiences to bring them emotional satisfaction, to find happiness and joy. And the thing about that is, it's not, it's not wrong, but it's not enough. It's not wrong, but it's not enough. Uh, David Nagel is a professor of philosophy at Dallas Baptist University. He wrote a book recently that I've really enjoyed. The subtitle of it is Learning the Deep Meaning of Happiness. And, and he writes that when we turn to the Bible to define happiness, we learn to define it not by hedonistic categories, you know, in terms of personal egotistical pleasure, uh, but we learn to define it in what he calls Edenistic terms. Not hedonistic, but Edenistic. He takes us back to the Garden of Eden. And whatever you think Genesis 1 through 3 means scientifically, uh, he argues that God created us to find happiness in a certain kind of way, uh, in a particular kind of environment and circumstances and relationships. Uh, primarily, he identifies six main areas. God created us to find happiness when we are in union with him, when we have fulfilling work, when we have human companionship, when we have the pleasure of food and drink, when we have rest and play, and when we find ourselves placed in a particular location that is beautiful and feels like home. And you'll notice all of those, but the first one, are primarily physical. Physical pleasures that lead to happiness. And I know as well as you do that in our own lives, happiness and pleasure are not so easily distinguished. Uh, so we look for happiness, we look for pleasure in kind of that list I mentioned a while back, education and finances and work and money and entertainment and health and all that. In, in one sense, it feels like we're on the wrong path. But in the other sense, we're on the right path. The problem is just we've, we've stopped to look at the signposts instead of continuing on the road, on the journey to God himself. I tend to read a lot of uh, stuff that C.S. Lewis has written. Um, I enjoy the way he puts things, and I'm, I'm going to quote him quite a bit this morning. But he wrote an autobiography called Surprised by Joy, and in it he recounts how a few transcendent experiences with what he just called joy, with a capital J, uh, a joy he couldn't define, the, these experiences led him eventually to faith in Christ. Because in each case with these things he experienced, he just jumped all in into that thing, trying to recapture that experience of joy, that transcendent longing for uh, being connected to something bigger. But as he, as he milked each thing for what it was worth and found that it left him empty eventually, he started to wonder, well, Maybe there's something 
behind these experiences that is the true source of joy. So he writes near the end of his autobiography. He says, the books are music in which we thought the beauty and the joy was located will betray us if we trust them. It was not in them, it only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they will turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not yet heard, news from a country we have not yet visited. He's saying that every activity, every person, everything he tried to suck all the joy out of he could, in the end, left him empty. But they were still useful as pointers, as signposts on the path to true joy. You know, the crux of the issue is that we as humans tend to fall into one of two opposite extremes when it comes to seeking happiness through pleasure. Uh, Some of us forfeit all earthly pleasure saying, no, God is not concerned with physical happiness, just with holiness. And we we say, we don't want anything that makes us feel good, or if it does, well, that's nice, but that's not at all the point. That's not what I'm looking for. Or, on the other hand, we just go all in with pleasure. It's like, I'm just going to gather as much as I can, and even though it's fleeting, maybe the next thing will last a little bit longer than the thing before it, and we just keep going for more and more pleasurable things, thinking that's where we get happiness from. But God is telling us through this psalm writer in this psalm, Psalm 33, that we're to find our joy ultimately in him. Shout for joy in the Lord. And that doesn't mean that we don't find joy and happiness anywhere else. It means that all that other joy and happiness we find anywhere else in life is just, it's just a sign on the way that says, hey, God, is this, this much farther ahead? Your destination is still in front of you. All the pleasures of this world point us towards him, drive us towards him, uh, at least or not least because they, they never last. Well, they don't last as long as we want them to. The very desire in us for a joy that never ceases, for a state of contentment and happiness that never ends, that desire in us points to the fact that we were made for the fulfillment of that desire. We were made for a joy that never ends. We were made for complete happiness. It's what the old theologians called the beatific vision. Uh, It's kind of an arcane, archaic phrase we don't use all that often, but it simply means the joy that comes from an uninhibited view of the face of God. It's the joy that comes when we see God face to face, something we won't experience fully in this life or maybe just have tastes of. But we get glimpses of it through the things God has created that bring us pleasure, happiness, and joy. The closest I've ever gotten to this, uh, this taste of a beatific vision, was on my birthday a couple of years ago. Uh, My wife took me to lunch at Fogo de Show, which is that uh, Brazilian churrascaria downtown, the steakhouse, the one where you have like the green sign that says, keep bringing the meat. You know, and then the red one that says, not right now, I'm chewing, and then the green one, bring me some more, right? So at, at one point, they came around with a tray, and I, uh, I selected a, a lamb T-bone. I'd never had a lamb T-bone before, but I uh, cut a piece off of the filet side and 
put it in my mouth, and it was amazing. I know some of you guys get that same sense from vegetables, but I don't get it. Uh, I think it takes... I think it takes something that eats vegetables to give me that feeling. <laughs> I took a second bite and just closed my eyes, just savoring this amazing piece of lamb. I'd never tasted anything this good before. I, I'm, I remember very clearly. I don't remember what it tasted like, just that I couldn't put it in words. I need, like, in Ratatouille, all those sparkles going off and everything, you know? And... Uh, so I finished chewing the second bite, and I opened my eyes, and my wife's sitting across the table from me, and she's just crying. She's like, you're so happy. <laughs> she, she was just tears. Does it change your approach to the psalm to think maybe that's what the guy had in mind when he wrote Shout for Joy? Just to, and, and, you know, the way we do it, because we're Western and we're European and we're worried about what people think of us, is we don't jump up and shout and rend our clothes and be like, this steak is amazing. We're just like, mm, that is good. And I think that's what he has in mind. That's what's in the background when he says, shout for joy in the Lord. Shout for joy. Now, I know we've taken care so far in this series as we talk about the Psalms to make sure we understand that they are not all happy, fun times songs about how every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. Uh, There are deep emotions in the Psalms, Uh, emotions like lament and anger, fear and discouragement and abandonment and envy and doubt and guilt, disappointment, mourning, grief. They're all in the Psalms because the Psalms cover the whole range of human experience. But the reason we've tended to think that the Psalms are mostly these happy praise songs is because if, if you skim through and just, you know, flip a couple pages, that's by and large what you're going to see. That is what the majority of them are. That language of praise and rejoicing of just savoring God, it comes through uh, very clearly. In his book, Reflection on the Psalms, Reflections on the Psalms, C.S. Lewis writes that the most valuable thing the Psalms do for me is to express the same delight in God which made King David dance. The Psalms are full of joy. They're full of delight. They're full of happiness. Many of these Psalms are songs written by people who were happy in God. So how do we get that same happiness? How do we cultivate that same sense of joy in God's presence in our own lives? You know, one of the reasons that Christians have tended to to think that joy and happiness are different things over the last hundred years or so is because happiness, not its definition, but its importance has shifted in the broader culture. You know, we tend to think, like I said, that happiness is the accumulation of stuff, relationships, things, and experiences, and how they make me feel. Uh, But happiness in our society has now become an end in itself, instead of a byproduct of some other end, right? So happiness is now a thing we shoot for instead of a thing that happens when we're shooting for something else, uh, when we're going after something else. Societies before ours, happiness was just that. It was nice if you got it, but it wasn't guaranteed, it, it wasn't part of our constitution of other societies that you were guaranteed to be happy. Of course, it actually says that you have the right to pursue happiness, not 
guaranteed that you'll be happy, but we kind of take it as a guarantee now. Joy used to be a byproduct of aiming for something else. So if we're going to learn to cultivate and experience happiness ourselves, we need to regain, relearn some of this ancient wisdom. Uh, Not just to look for happiness in the right places, but also to learn that happiness doesn't tend to come when you're shooting for it. It comes when you're shooting for something else. So speaking of the right places, um, I I know I'm repeating myself, but the first verse says, shout for joy in the Lord. Uh, Joy, as I've said, ultimately comes from God. He created us to be happy when we're in union with Him. He is concerned about our holiness, our obedience, our worship, but He also created us to find happiness in fulfilling work, in human companionship, in food and drink, through rest and play, through beauty and the sense of of belonging in the physical environment we find ourselves in. But most of the world, for most of history, has not had the luxury that we have of actually focusing on those things. Uh, In subsistence cultures, when you're just trying to get by, you know, fulfilling work is really nice, but what you really need to do is put food on the table. Uh, When so many died in childbirth, and so many were killed at young ages, and so many didn't live past their 50s, human companionship was great while it lasted. We are so blessed that we have time to focus on how none of our blessings last as long as we want them to. And we're so blessed that we've started to focus on these other areas, on work and companionship and food and rest and play and the place we're in. We started to focus on them as the end themselves, as if those are the things that are going to bring us full and complete and lasting joy. Whatever that thing is that's bringing us happiness right now, uh, that's the thing that we just use it up until there's no happiness left in it. You know, we become quite literally consumers, consuming the good things of the world until there's nothing left in them for us to get out of them and then chucking them and going on to something else, which is an abuse of the way God created us to find happiness. He created us to live in a paradise, to live in Eden, where we would flourish and find pleasure and find happiness in all of these areas, but not without Him. In another of his books, Lewis writes that our ancestors thought thought that they could invent some sort of happiness for themselves outside God, apart from God. He sees this as the fundamental problem of humanity. And out of that hopeless attempt to find happiness somewhere else has come nearly all that we call human history. Money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empires, slavery. It's the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God, which will make him happy. He says God cannot give us a happiness and a peace apart from him because it's not there. There's no such thing. You know, God is not an add-on to our happiness, as if we could do pretty well on our own, but then we can add God and maybe get a little bit of a multiplier to it, like, oh, kick it up a notch, because we've got God in our life too. All the things of the world, all the things the world gives us can bring us happiness and pleasure 
and joy in God when we see them as gifts from God. Back when we lived in Iowa 10, 11 years ago, something like that, Jenna was sort of interviewing for an admin job at a friend's uh, design firm. The job didn't end up materializing, but we were invited to the company Christmas party, which was kind of nice. It was at a pretty swanky restaurant, or at least as swanky as you can get for Des Moines circa 2005. Uh, It was at the top of a hotel, and the restaurant was known for its steak. (laughs) You're sensing a theme in what makes me happy. I was excited to eat there. And so uh, my favorite part, well, not my favorite part, but the part I remember most clearly at the beginning of the meal, the guy came out with this big platter with all these different greens on it and all these different cuts of steak, artfully arranged, raw steak. And he brought it out and and he's he's, explaining it to us. This is a ribeye and this is a T-bone. And if you did the T-bone, you've got both a ribeye and a filet. This is a filet. We can wrap it in bacon if you want. And Bacon makes everything better, so why not? You know, and, and, and he's like, this is, you want to look for this cut, you want to look for this kind of marbling, and he's explaining the whole thing, and I thought it was great. My, my best, friend, best friend's wife was almost throwing up, but I thought it was a phenomenal presentation. Very enjoyable, but if we had stopped the meal right then, it would have been kind of pointless, right? The beauty of an uncooked steak is that it is a signpost to the flavor that comes from a cooked steak. It is not meant to be enjoyed itself as an end in itself. It's meant to be enjoyed temporarily as it points to something that's a little more well done. And it's the same way with the pleasures, the the things that God has given us to enjoy in this life. We are supposed to enjoy them, but the meal doesn't stop here. It points us on to something else. It points us on to a greater pleasure, a greater source of happiness that is a little more well done. All the pleasures of this world, whether you're just walking outside and feeling the sunshine, tasting a perfectly cooked dish, having a conversation with a friend or a spouse who just gets you, Walking into a beautifully decorated room, uh, the satisfaction of rest after a long day of fulfilling work, just the feeling of coming home, these are pleasures that make us happy because it's a gift from God. But each one of them will ultimately fail us if we fail to see through them to the giver himself. They will fail if we think we have to have every one of them in their fullest extent in order to see through them to the giver himself, as if God isn't good enough unless he gives us absolutely everything. Because there's only one thing we can't do without, and that's God himself. So, Psalm 33, verse 1, we shout for joy in the Lord. We shout for joy in the Lord through the things he's given us because they point us to him. And actually, that's what the rest of Psalm 33 does. It gives us a catalog of reasons to find joy in God. Let me just skim through and pull out some of the highlights. Uh, Verses 4 and 5 are are a description of God's divine perfections. He's upright. He's just. He's faithful. He's loving. We should praise him for that. Verses uh, 6 and 7 describe how he made everything 
He made the whole world, and, and he gathers in the waters of the sea, sea meaning chaos to the non-seafaring Israelites. He gathers in chaos as easy as a farmer gathers in the harvest at the end of the season. Eight and nine, it says, this is how we should respond to him because of that. Verses 10, 11, 12 uh, show us that, that God, you know, it doesn't matter what people plan or what nations try to do. God's plan will ultimately prevail. And his people, the nation of Israel, this nation who is blessed because God is their God, is their Lord, uh, he's going to bless them no matter what happens. Verses 13 through 17 continue this theme of God's commanding rule. You know, as he watches over the inhabitants of the earth, their strength comes to nothing before him. And verses 18 and 19 say that that same commanding rule, that same watchful presence is watching over the righteous, over those who fear God. But it's not the eye of judgment. It's the eye of love. He's watching closely, attentively, as closely as a parent watches a newborn infant. He's watching us, ready to jump in and save us and deliver us, it says. Psalm 33 is a litany of reasons to find our joy in God. It gives us reason after reason, situation after situation that should lead us to rejoice in Him, to be happy in Him, to savor who God is. He's faithful. He's in control. He's powerful. He's loving. Again, in his book, Reflections on the Psalms, Lewis writes, these, these poets knew far less reason for, than we for loving God. Yet they express a longing for Him, for His mere presence, which comes only to the best Christians or only to Christians in their best moments. They didn't know, Lewis says, that God had promised them eternal life and that he himself would one day die to win it for them. They didn't know that, that Jesus himself, that God's only son, would forsake his complete and total happiness and joy in heaven in order to come to earth as a man to live the life of obedience that you and I should have lived. To die the death for our disobedience, the death that you and I should have died. They didn't know that God himself was going to give up his eternal happiness so that we could find a happiness and a joy that will never go away. That's guaranteed to last for eternity. A joy that is more powerful than any sorrow or despair. A joy that comes from, from knowing that every need we have, every debt we've accrued, is met and dispensed with in Christ. They knew a lot, but they didn't know that. How much more reason do we have for rejoicing in God? How much more reason do we have for being overwhelmed by the grace of God? How much more reason do we have for being completely floored by the undeserved love of God toward us? Our sin their sin was so bad it took an animal to die. Our sin was so bad it took the death of God to atone for. And yet we are loved, so loved, that God willingly died to forgive us.
I mean, how fallen are we? But how loved are we? How can we not look at God, look at the God who would do that for us and not shout for joy because of his steadfast love? Now, I'm not saying you have to break out of our Western Europeanism and actually shout. It's okay to just go, mm, in your soul. That's the way we do it. But how can we not look to the God who would do that for us and respond in joy? So where do we find joy? How do we cultivate it? How do we grow the happiness that's within ourselves? How do we grow it within ourselves when we get it from God? We do what the psalmist does. We look to God, we look to what God has done, who he is for us. And we sing and we pray and we shout and we give thanks to God for all he has done. And we gather together as often as we can to once again tell the story of who God is and what he's done. To remind one another of what God has done in our lives individually and in our lives corporately. We watch how God has worked in history. We repeat to ourselves what God is like. We tell it to each other until the image of the God who is and the God who has done so much for us, until it's front and center in our experience, until we can just close our eyes and savor joy in God. You know, and then we can turn to the world around us and we can love it and we can experience its pleasures and its happiness as a gift from God which is wonderful to get because it's like seeing a sign on the road that says God is just a little bit farther ahead. Keep going. You'll find him and you'll find ultimate joy. Father, you have given us so much in this life, so much that we have taken to be just an end in itself, but you meant it to point us to you. So I pray today that we would we would seek after you and in the seeking of you find the happiness that comes from union with you and that is overflowed to us in all these other ways you created us to live as if live in a paradise with work and companionship and food and rest and play and beauty around us. Let those things bring us a joy and a happiness that points us to you. In Jesus' name. Amen.